You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. We have a special guest today, Senator Mitt Romney, a senator from Utah, GOP presidential candidate in 2012, and now ranking Republican member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Romney, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you very much, David. Happy to join you. I wish I were the ranking member uh, of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but I'm happy to be on the committee. <laughs> well, we, we're, we're happy to give you the battlefield promotion and we'll, we'll, we'll wait for the future. We have a lot to discuss this morning uh, from Ukraine to China, but I want to begin with the surprise announcement uh, this morning that U.S. Uh, Special Operations Forces had killed overnight the leader of ISIS, Abu Ibrahim al-Qureshi. I'd be interested in hearing your reaction to President Biden's decision to authorize that strike. Well, I think it was the right thing to do. Uh, there's no question but that ISIS continues to pose a threat to uh, our friends and allies, uh, not only in uh, the Middle East, but in other parts of the world. Uh, that The battle against extremism and jihadism is one that's not finished. Uh, it will go on as long as they continue to attack and, uh, and to maim and kill. Uh, and so removing their commander, uh, the, the head of, of ISIS, is obviously a huge accomplishment. Uh, is to be congratulated. And of course, uh, we, we look at the, the members of our military that carried out this, uh, this strike, and uh, you have to acknowledge their extraordinary bravery and their skill. Senator, let's uh, turn to Ukraine. Uh, members of Congress are said to have had a briefing today uh, from administration officials about the situation. Tell us what you can about the current status of the military threat about the status of diplomatic efforts to avert an invasion. What did you hear today that you can share with our listeners? Uh, well, first of all, uh, the Director of National Intelligence and the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, described uh, the intelligence that uh, that we have with regards to the region. And uh, and, and I would just note that, uh, that the peril uh, has not been overstated. Uh, that the uh, that the risk to to Ukraine to its leadership and to the people there is real, uh, and that that we are right to be focused on it. Uh, and uh, I, I I can't be more specific than that. I should not be more specific than that. I, I, at the same time, I think it's important that uh, we recognize that uh, the only way we're going to deter Russia from its uh, attempt to try and rebuild, if you will, parts of the old Soviet Union in terms of a sphere of influence. Uh, is to let them know that we as not just the United States of America, but we as NATO and our friends and allies around the world will continue to insist that Russia and China abide by the rules-based international order. And part of that is you don't invade sovereign nations. You let individuals choose their own course in their nations. And what Russia is attempting to do in Ukraine is unacceptable. And we will uh, carry out uh, various sanctions and punishments if they uh, violate the rules that have been guiding the world for the last 75 years. Senator, based on what you heard today and what, what you know from following the situation closely, do you believe that uh, President Putin is likely to invade Ukraine? 
Uh, I, I think uh, he is, has every opportunity and is uh, fully prepared to invade. I, I've never tried to get inside the mind of Vladimir Putin, uh, so I don't know what his intentions are, but, but there are a number of things that are uh, possibilities. One is that he intends to invade. Another is that he wanted to test NATO and see whether we're uh, able to be pulled apart. What he found instead is that we are able to come together. Uh, NATO uh, is stronger, I think, by virtue of, uh, of his threats. And, uh, and, and uh, that's a good thing because we need uh, our allies and friends, not only as we confront, confront Russia in Europe, but also as we consider China and their expansive uh, interests around the world. So uh, he failed on that front. And then I think uh, you have to ask whether, uh, you know, he's gonna take military action there or some other type of action. I don't know the answer to that. But um, I, I can tell you that based upon the briefings we've had, uh, that the, uh, the very real threat uh, is not overstated and that, uh, that we should be prepared uh, in the event that there is an invasion. Let me ask you to assess uh, President Biden's handling of, of this crisis. Uh, President's latest uh, move uh, with NATO allies was to order a forward deployment of 3,000 uh, American troops, some from Germany, some coming from the U.S., to frontline NATO countries. That's the latest in a series of what have been uh, fairly uh, tough-minded responses. How would you assess his performance? Well, the, the first part of his performance is to engage uh, on a diplomatic front and to sit down and talk with, uh, with uh, Putin or his uh, emissaries and to understand what they say they want. Uh, I, I have to acknowledge that uh, the only time Putin is lying is if his lips, lips are moving. Uh, so you, you have to take whatever is being said at these diplomatic meetings uh, with a very large grain of salt. Nonetheless, uh, Secretary Blinken and other members of the administration have done a dutiful job uh, uh, negotiating with the Russians, but also a heroic job uh, linking with our allies uh, and making sure that Russia understands it's not just the U.S., but it's all of us that have come together. Uh, and then on the military front, I think it's important to point out we're not going to go to war with Russia. Uh, we're not going to uh, enter into a, a battle. I mean, uh, sending over 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 troops uh, is not going to be uh, in any way sufficient to, to go uh, go into war with a, a, a superpower uh, uh, or a major power, Russia, uh, on, on their continent. That's not going to happen. But sending those troops, as the president has done, sends a message to our allies. It says to our allies, we care. We are there for, for you. We are there for NATO. This is important to us. That's what it does. It also sends a message to, to Russia that we are united as NATO and that we will stand with our NATO allies. We will stand by the commitments we've made to NATO. So that's what's being done. And, and I think it's the right step on the president's part, whether uh, those troops uh, should be supplemented or not. Th those are questions which General Milley uh, and Secretary Austin will have to resolve. But the message is being sent and that's appropriate. And I hear you giving the Biden team pretty high marks for working with NATO, working with our allies to make sure that we have a unified response. Am I getting that right? Yeah, you do get that right. And, and you know, there, there's a perception, I think, that a lot of us have that are a little older that somehow what America wants, we ought to be able just to ask for and, and everybody will fall in line. But the world is different than it was in the 1960s. In 1960, the U.S. was responsible for 40 percent of the economy of the entire world, 40 percent. Today, it's 24 percent. And for us to have the capacity to 
if you will, get nations like Russia and China to abide by the rules of the international order, uh, we really do need to link arms with other economies in the world. Uh, and, and whether those are economies in the East uh, or whether they're economies in Europe or, or Latin America, it, it is important for us to have a, a collaborative response. And so whether you're concerned about Russia or concerned about China or any other malevolent actor, uh, it's important for us to be aligned with our friends because that gives us more clout and makes, us, makes it more likely uh, that people will take what we have to say more seriously. So, Senator, you've been warning about the threat uh, from Russia f for a long time. Uh, back in the 2012 presidential campaign, you took some flack from President Obama uh, during one of the debates because you described Russia as our number one geopolitical foe. Obama claimed that was 1980s thinking, uh, putting you down. But I have to say, uh, it looks pretty solid in retrospect. I want to ask you whether you think that uh, politicians from both parties have taken their eye off the Russian threat and ask in particular about um, uh, people in, in the Republican Party, especially uh, former President Trump, who have sometimes seemed to be minimizing the Russian threat. Yeah, I think uh, it's very possible to minimize the threat because things have been going along pretty well for the last uh, few decades, with the exception of Russia's invasion of Georgia and Russia's invasion of Ukraine to take uh, Crimea. So they've shown who they are and, and recognize the incentives here which is Russia has a population about, what, about one-tenth the size of China. Russia wants to be a superpower. It wants to be at the, at the, uh, the, in the room where it happens, if you will. And, and so it wants more population. It want, wants more economic base. Look, we don't buy anything from Russia other than energy. No one does. And, and their industrial base is just not competitive. So they're looking for a stronger industrial base, a stronger uh, population base. And so they're looking at the old Soviet empire and they want to rebuild part of the Soviet Union, uh, perhaps not with the same title on it, but with the same economic and military potential. So that's just the reality. John McCain used to say that, that Russia was a gas station parading as a country. They want to change that. And so you can expect Vladimir Putin to continue to take aggressive action, one, to strengthen his hand, and number two, to weaken ours. And, and so what I said back in 2012 was based on those things, which is Russia will continue to poke us in the eye to support anything or anyone who opposes our interests to, uh, to throw sand in the gears of the international order. Everything they can do to try and weaken us and strengthen them is something they're going to do. Will we be at war with Russia? No. They don't want to be at war any more than we do. Uh, and we're a heck of a lot stronger anyway. But, but, uh, but they are gonna do what they think they need to do to try and strengthen their hand. And, and we have to say to them, look, if you do that on a legitimate basis and try and win the hearts and minds of people, that's fine. But if you t invade others or you use illegal means to, uh, to uh, change leadership in other nations, why that's something which is gonna be an open door to other malevolent actors, and that's simply not acceptable. And those things inevitably lead to global contact conflict as they have in our past. Senator, do you think that uh, that other Republicans, most Republicans in Congress, will end up supporting you, a, a position that you just outlined, and President Biden, who has a similar view in this crisis, uh, and that we'll have some political unity behind what, what the U.S. does? What's your judgment about that? 
Uh, I do believe that uh, Senator Risch, who is the ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee, uh, and Senator Menendez, the Democrat on that committee, uh, will come together uh, with a piece of legislation which uh, talks about the sanctions that will be applied on Russia. I think there is uh, broad support for uh, standing with our friends and, uh, and, and showing full commitment to the rules-based international order. I think that's real. At the same time, there will inevitably be some people who, uh, if you will, carry out the performance politics that we've seen uh, from time to time uh, and, uh, and try and win some political points. And they may very well believe those points entirely from their own conscience, which is their right to do. But so we're not going to have 100 percent unity by any means. But uh, but I believe that that the uh, the great majority of Republicans in the Senate, at least, will uh, will be convinced that we should be committed to NATO that we should be committed to our involvement in the world. I mean, I hope people understand that the reason we're involved in the world, the reason we have troops all over the world, uh, the reason that we uh, are engaged around the world is in our own interest. We don't just do this because we, we care about everybody in the world, though we do. We care about America. And, uh, you know, I used to laugh at the phrase America first. It's been America first uh, for the last 75 years, we've been involved in the world, investing in the world to try and keep the world peaceful and to make it a place where we're able to sell goods and services so that our people can do well financially. So uh, that's been the reason we've been involved in the world, and it continues to be a reason for that involvement. Well, one more question about Ukraine before we turn to other subjects. I'm curious, uh, Senator, whether you would support some of the diplomatic proposals that have leaked in the last few days uh, that are attempts by the United States to see if there is some way to de-escalate this, this crisis. Two in particular involve mutual inspection of uh, missile facilities um, on, on both sides. The Russians could look at missiles in, in Ukraine uh, with some reciprocity. Another is a U.S. guarantee that uh, American troops wouldn't be stationed in Ukraine, regardless of the NATO membership issue. Uh, similarly, that Russian troops wouldn't be in Ukraine either. Would you support uh, 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 measures like that as part of a diplomatic package? I think it's appropriate to consider measures which uh, we feel are uh, uh, in our interest in the interest of, of uh, global peace and in the interest of the security uh, of, of Ukraine and other nations in the region. But at the same time, I think it's very important that we don't uh, agree to uh, changes uh, or, or conditions as a result of being pressured by Russia putting 100,000 troops on the border of a nation. Uh, so, so this is not a time for us to agree to things that we wouldn't otherwise have agreed to. Uh, so I, I think it's, uh, I mean, we, we, we have the old statement, which is you don't negotiate with terrorists. Uh, and, and, and I'm not calling Russia a, a terrorist necessarily, but I do say that when you have 100,000 troops on the border and, and ships amassing in the Black Sea and, and uh, you're, you're giving every indication of the readiness for an invasion, you don't sit down with those people and, and say, hey, what would you like? Uh, that's, that's the wrong approach. It'll just be met with that happening time and time again. So I just want to make sure I'm, I'm clear on this. Are you saying that we shouldn't be offering uh, diplomatic proposals, written responses to, to Russian proposals until Russian troops are, are removed from, from their current uh, positions near the border? 
Well, there's the report, for instance, that Russia is insisting that we uh, we commit that Ukraine will never be a member of NATO. Well, that's not something we're going to do. Uh, that they they they're, if you will, showing military uh, might uh, to try and exact a a commitment of that nature, which is simply unacceptable to America. Violates our principles. No, we won't do that. Uh, are there other things that we might agree to that we would otherwise have agreed to? Uh, and that and that are a mutual interest, such as you know we get to inspect yours and you get to inspect ours. Hey, that, that's uh, that's fair game. But uh, so those discussions are appropriate and, and are ongoing. But but uh, uh, acceding to demands uh, as a result of Russia's uh, military buildup is not the the right course to take. And I doubt the administration uh, will go in that path anyway. So let's let's turn to several other issues, starting with, with China. Um, you've been a strong uh, critic, warning about, about growing Chinese military power. I ask whether you worry that with so much focus on Ukraine, we may be in danger of losing uh, focus on, on what, what uh, many people think is a, is a bigger long-term a strategic threat to the United States coming from China. What's what's your sense about that? Well, China is a a, a much greater uh, threat to the global order and to the United States uh, than is Russia. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't uh, pay attention to uh, more than one thing at a time. And uh, we are, after all, a great nation with a lot of very good people. Uh, and uh, and China represents a real uh, challenge as, as a result of a number of things. One is its economy is going to be much larger than ours at some point. And their military will therefore be much larger than ours. We haven't encountered anything like that, at least in the last 75 years. Because when we were battling the Soviet Union in a Cold War, uh, they, they were economically a backwater. But China is going to be a very powerful nation economically, uh, technologically, and militarily. China has also laid out a very clear game plan as to what they want to accomplish uh, over the next, uh, well, over the next 50 years. And we had to read it and be uh, convinced that they intend to do what they say they intend to do, which is to become the world leader uh, militarily, economically, and geopolitically. Uh, and, uh, and they also are threatening a, a, a very key group of people who, in, in Taiwan. Uh, so uh, we have to recognize that China long term is a much greater uh, threat to the global order, even than the, uh, the geopolitical machinations of Vladimir Putin. So you mentioned uh, Taiwan, which is the obvious uh, flashpoint between us and China. Last Thursday, China's new ambassador to the United States warned that the U.S. could face a military conflict, uh, in his words, with China over uh, Taiwan. There's a long-standing argument about whether the United States should be explicit about its willingness to defend uh, Taiwan if attacked. Uh, President Biden recently, after some contradictory language, uh, reaffirmed the U.S. policy of what is called strategic ambiguity, not saying exactly what we would do. What's your judgment about whether we ought to be explicit uh, about uh, our, our willingness to defend Taiwan? I, I think ambiguity is the right course with regards to our military uh, uh, commitment. Uh, at the same time, I think it's very important uh, for China to recognize that, uh, that our economic uh, response 
and that of our allies and friends around the world would be withering uh, if China were to uh, invade or otherwise take over uh, the island of Taiwan and the people there. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to uh, be clear in our uh, response to what Russia's doing in Ukraine, because obviously China's watching as well. And, and uh, so, so people who say, hey, why do we care about Ukraine? You know, let, let's just forget Ukraine. It's like, guys, recognize we, we care about not just Ukraine, but Taiwan and other places in the world, Hong Kong and, and so forth. And, and, uh, and showing resolve is critical in, in each of these places. So uh, yeah, be very, very clear about the economic impl implications that we and others would impose on China were there to be uh, malevolent uh, activity at, by, by China against uh, Taiwan. But the, on a military front, uh, that's something I think you keep uh, uh, in, in our back pocket uh, and, uh, and have the Chinese uncertain as to exactly what we would do. So last question about China, the Winter Olympic Games begin uh, in a matter of hours. Uh, you have uh, urged other countries to support a diplomatic boycott, but not a, a, an athlete's boycott of the games. I'm curious whether, what you think about athletes speaking out about political issues while they're in Beijing. Chinese officials have given stern warnings against any such uh, p political comments. What do you think? Is that something that's appropriate for athletes at an Olympics or not? Well, the International Olympic Committee should have never awarded the Games to Beijing. Uh, now, in the defense of the IOC, uh, Beijing has, con has uh, put in place a number of even more uh, awful uh, actions uh, since the Games were awarded there. But the laws in China, which prohibit any criticism of the CCP, of the Communist Chinese Party, uh, make it unacceptable for athletes to, to be in that setting. Uh, but we are where we are. These athletes have trained their entire lives to be able to be in Olympic Games. And so they are there. But for their own personal safety, they're going to have to make sure they abide by Chinese law. And it's outrageous that they're put in that position. But there are ways that they can make their, uh, their feelings known. And, uh, and, and they, I know I've, I've read a number of articles uh, and spoken with individuals about uh, the kinds of actions being considered by athletes. Uh, they have to obviously make sure they're following Chinese law. But look, we can't have the International Olympic Committee awarding games to authoritarian states that use the Olympics as a platform for, for propaganda and which threaten the free speech rights of our athletes. That, that simply can't happen again. So I want to turn to several uh, political issues before we uh, have to end our discussion, uh, starting with the question of uh, the Senate's vote uh, on confirming a nominee, one that nominee is selected to replace uh, Justice Breyer. President Biden has uh, said he intends to nominate a black woman for that seat. Um, uh, he's gotten some criticism from re Republicans that what's your judgment about about making explicit that commitment does it trouble you uh, i don't have a problem with that there are 54 uh, black women who are federal judges uh, surely among those 54 there must be uh, more than one uh, that would be qualified to be on the supreme court uh, we, we i know we want the best and brightest but there were a lot of best and brightest across our entire country uh, and I think it would be a positive thing to have an African-American woman on the Supreme Court. 
helping represent uh, our, our the diversity of our nation. Uh, and, and I hope he's able to find a, a person that I can end up supporting. Let's talk finally about where our, our country is these days. You, you were among the first Republicans to congratulate uh, Joe Biden on his election victory. You made a statement on November 7. Some polls show that a majority of Republicans still, uh, more than a year later, don't accept that Joe Biden won the election fairly. And I wonder what you say uh, to them as a fellow Republican. And whether you worry about a party in which so many people are denying what you viewed as a fact uh, uh, so soon after the election, what, what do you what do you say to your fellow Republicans? Well, I scratch my head a bit to tell you the truth, David, uh, because uh, uh, the the argument that somehow Joe Biden didn't win uh, is uh, not bolstered by any facts. Uh, it's been uh, it's been a year almost, uh, well, more than a year. Uh, there's been no evidence put forward uh, that suggests Joe Biden didn't win. Uh, and so at some point, you got to put up the evidence. And it's pretty clear when, when President Trump uh, said even before the election that it was going to be uh, fraudulent if he didn't win. And then on the day of the election said that there had been irregularities and that he had really won. When, of course, he had no such information. The FBI didn't give it to him. Justice Department didn't give it to him. States didn't tell him that. He was hearing just the opposite. Uh, and he's continued to speak about it since. So, I, you know, I, I, uh, I recognize that uh, members of my party are, are listening to sources that uh, uh, continue to tell them that, uh, that, that he won the election. And perhaps it's sort of a badge of honor to say, yeah, I believe that. But frankly, I think democracy requires people uh, to hear the truth and ultimately to support the truth. Uh, look, more important than who wins an election is that we have elections and that we have democracy. And right now in the world, uh, authoritarian regimes are on the march, are gaining ground, democracy is retreating, and it is simply unacceptable for the leader of the free world to be casting doubt on the reliability of elections and democracy itself. So it's important for, for me and for other members of my party and for people of, of, of good faith in all parties uh, to come forward and tell the truth. And then, then move on. And by the way, if we if we want to see a Republican in the White House again, go to work to get someone elected. But uh, but spreading uh, untruth about the last election doesn't help anybody. So, uh, last question, and we're running out of time. But I want to make sure that I I put this to you. A year after the January sixth attack on the Capitol, you said the following. We ignore the lessons of January 6th at our own peril. Democracy is fragile. It cannot survive without leaders of integrity and character who care more about the strength of our republic than about winning the next election. So I want to ask you, you've spent much of your life in public service. Uh, for a quick summary of what you think it's going to take to fix what in so many ways is a broken political system. Well, I wish I had a, a quick answer to that, David, and I and I don't. Um, you know, I uh, I have a chart uh, on on the wall in my office that looks at the history of the Earth, uh, going back 2000 uh, BC until now, and looking at the coming and going of various great civilizations. And there have been many that have come and gone. Uh, there are a couple of striking things: one, how many were great, and then ceased being great, and the other is that virtually all of them were led by autocrats. Autocratic rule is the, uh, if you will, the default setting 
of world history. And so this democratic uh, republic as a, uh, a principle uh, is, uh, is something which is unusual and, and is fragile. And, and, and I think, you know, we grew up with it and think it's got to be this way forever. Actually, look again at the history of the world. It doesn't have to be this way forever. And, and so, I, you know, I really look to leaders uh, here in Washington and in homes and churches and schools and everywhere to say, look, disagree with one another, but recognize nonetheless in these disagreements that we respect one another, that we respect the Constitution upon which America was founded, that the principles of America are right for us and right for people around the world if they want to enjoy prosperity and happiness. And, uh, you know, as you look at, again, at world history, uh, nations that began to slide, there've been a couple of cases where they've been able to turn around. And they turned around in part because of either some crisis that uh, shook them to their, their roots or because of a leader that stood up and, and uh, was able to pull them together, whether it was Lincoln or Churchill or even the four great emperors in, in Rome, there have been people who've been uh, who've come forward at a critical time. And and I, I look to our presidents, Republican and Democrat, to bring us together and hope they will be successful in helping do that. Senator Mitt Romney, thank you so much for joining us on Washington Post Live. Uh, it's really great to have you. We hope, hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Thanks, David. All the best to you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.